the Bodhisattva Siddhartha began his search for the end of suffering when he saw clearly, when he saw insightfully, when he took it in and realized the meaning of old age, sickness, and death, and the inevitable suffering that attends those facts. And his search was for the end of suffering, the end of all forms of suffering. Left home, went to practice. After some years, deep realization of the truth. In that realization, the Bodhisattva became the awakened one, the one who sees things as they are. The Buddha doesn't invent the truth. The Buddha doesn't create the truth. He doesn't think it up. Somehow, he discovers it. And whether the Buddha exists in the world or not, the truth is as it is. But it is a Buddha who realizes it and brings that knowledge of the way things are into the world to share with and for the benefit of others. The realization of the truth, the truth of dukkha, the truth of the cause of dukkha being craving or clinging the fact and the truth of the cessation of dukkha. It's possible. It's here, in front of us, now, immediate. And the truth of how to realize that, the fourth noble truth, the path to be developed to reach the end of suffering. Buddha's path, or the Buddha's template for reaching the end of suffering, reaching the end of dukkha, is called the Noble Eightfold Path. And this word noble comes from the word ariya. And ariya means excellent, worthy, exalted, the path that the Buddha taught is a noble path. It's an exalted path. It's a worthy path. It's an excellent path for anyone wishing to reach the end of suffering. Now, it's been said, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. But the Buddha was really clear where he was going. 
And his teachings point to a very precise goal, the end of suffering. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no detours, no distractions, no addendums, just the end of suffering. That's it. I mean, that's quite a lot. Our freedom from suffering is not a birthright. We have the potential, but each of us must develop the eightfold factors of the path to awaken to that truth, to realize that truth for ourselves. We have the potential, but we ourselves must walk the path, must develop the path. No one can prevent you from doing it. No one. neither can the Buddha do it for you. The Buddha is here to point the way to the truth. It's our responsibility to develop it, to realize it. The Buddha's Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth, is a systematic development of three trainings to address the different areas of our life, our social uh, interactions and the suffering or the dukkha of that, our inner life, our heart, our mind, and the dukkha of that, and our understanding. These three areas where we suffer need to be addressed and are addressed by the trainings of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha's path is also progressive. You can step onto the path anywhere, at any time, from any place, no matter what you're doing, no matter how much you've practiced or haven't practiced, no matter how exalted or depraved you think you are, you can step onto the path and begin right then, or begin again right then, to develop your mind, to free yourself from suffering. systematic, it's progressive, with uh, increasing uh, subtlety, with the opening to increasing subtle, subtle layers of suffering or subtle degrees of suffering, the Buddha has a path and a practice to address it. But the Eightfold Path is also comprehensive. It deals with every aspect of our life. And there is a significant shift in anyone who is interested in practicing the Dharma or practicing the Dharma when we graduate from seeing meditation and practice as something we do 
when we graduate from that to understanding that the Dharma is really our way of life. And that's a huge, that's a, that's a huge step. It's not something we, you know, can be ambitious about. It's something that we grow into when we understand that nothing in our life, nothing we do, nothing we imagine, nothing we will do, is outside of the Dharma. The Dharma isn't only when we sit for an hour each day or when we go on retreat once or twice a year. Everything we do touches the Dharma. So if the Buddha spent 35 or 45 years teaching this path, there must be a lot of suffering going on. There must be a lot of dukkha that the Buddha was speaking to. And so we have to ask ourselves, even though we have been looking closely and investigating this first noble truth, the truth of dukkha here, what is it that causes us personally to suffer? Why are we unhappy? What are the experiences of unhappiness in the generic? There are what the Buddha termed torments of the mind, kilesa, torments of the mind. When present, we feel tormented and, of course, suffer. If we are tormented bad enough or strong enough, we will act out our torment. What are the torments of the mind? What are the kilesas? Craving, anger, impatience, sloth, torpor, the, the familiar hindrances, they're all there, but also pride, misunderstanding or wrong understanding. If we are tormented by these states of mind, we often will act them out in our relationships to others. And when we do, they have a major uh, effect of causing suffering. It, we call it transgressive kilesis. We move against others. We say things, we do things, we behave in such a way that other people suffer. That's a major acting out. Sometimes, though, we get a handle on that, and we're not acting out our torments, but we're feeling them in our heart. And often on retreat, this is where we spend a lot of time, we're being kind to each other generally, living in harmony, but uh, something inside of our heart hasn't got the message. And it is not living in harmony with anything. It's really upset. So, the kalesas aren't uh, pushing us to act out, but they are obsessing us. So we call this obsessive kalesa. 
lately, even now after a week of, of practice, some of you report periods of time, no hindrances, calmness even, clarity, lightness of mind and body, a sense of spaciousness, no kalesas, no torments in the mind. But conditions change. <laughs> and so we have to say that those kalesas are latent in that situation. And when conditions change, they are no longer latent, or they may no longer be latent. And so we have these three levels of uh, torment in the mind. Transgressive kalesas, where we act them out. Obsessive kalesas, when we are just kind of internally driven crazy. And latent kalesas, when we aren't currently experiencing the torments, but um, <laughs> they're just kind of waiting around the corner. These kalesas, they're the source of our suffering. These torments of the mind, they cause us to suffer. So the Buddha's Eightfold Path is directed towards overcoming and eventually uprooting these kalesas from the mind. And so the Buddha taught three trainings. There's the training in ethical conduct, or sila. And uh, what we are doing here in undertaking the precepts is the practice of sila. Purifying our speech, purifying our behavior of the kalesas so that we aren't acting out, so that we're not causing others suffering by what we say and what we do. Right? Well, generally we're being nice to each other, kind, uh, respectful, and not saying and doing those things which cause others pain. This is the power of the practice of sila, to, to bring the end of suffering to this whole area of our life, this whole area of interpersonal relationships. It's hard, though. We know. It's hard to kind of bite our tongue when we see some of what they're doing or what we would like to do. And so we just kind of have to exercise some restraint, take a deep breath, and let it go. What is it with letting go? Remember the, remember the second noble truth is the cause of dukkha is clinging, craving. What is it that we're letting go of in the practice of sila, in the practice of right, speech, right action, right livelihood. These are the three path factors. What is it that we're letting go? Seeking pleasure for ourselves at the expense of others. Seeking gratification for ourselves uh, when it imposes pain on others. And we do that. We get angry and we feel self-righteous about it. 
and we say and we act so that we feel okay. The other person doesn't feel okay. We let go of that. We let go of that impulse to react in defense of ourselves. We let go. It's hard, though. It takes quite a lot of restraint to put the brakes on the momentum of our acting out. It takes a lot of, uh, you know, communal support. Uh, it takes a reaffirmation of our commitment to the precepts every day to do that. But in this commitment to right speech, right behavior, right action, right livelihood, we create, through our commitment, a community in which we and others feel safe. Very important to do that. If we don't feel safe, how can we be happy? Fear, tension, apprehension, suspicion. Impossible to be happy. And so in a community, a small community like this, a big community like the village or the town or the city where you live, if there isn't that commitment to living in harmony, to exercising some restraint, can't feel safe. When I was a monk in Burma, monks and nuns live in an intentional community according to precepts, rules. And the rules are there so that a safe and harmonious community or sangha can be maintained. The strength or the, the stability of that safety is as fragile as a single monk's commitment. That's it. All it takes is one person casual in their commitment or not even committed. And the fabric of harmony in that community is jeopardized. One person in a community of good folks who is acting out unkindly, uh, you know, any of the precepts, uh, not respecting life, not respecting property, not uh, maintaining uh, uh, honorable relationships with others through speaking and sexuality, or uh, confusing their mind through the use of uh, intoxicants one or another. It sets up a, a, a difficult energy in that community within the relationships of everyone there, whether they know it or not. That's, that's the amazing thing whether the others know specifically what's happening or not, you can, you can feel it. You can know who has the commitment to this community and who doesn't. It's a source of tremendous uh, happiness and joy when you live amongst others who 
take their commitments to the harmony of community seriously. Those who really honor the happiness of their neighbors and are willing to restrain themselves in order to preserve it are people worthy of your affection, worthy of your love, worthy of your generosity. There are two qualities of mind that are most mm, developed or uh, that when attended to make it possible to live a life in harmony. And these are conscience and modesty. I mentioned them in an earlier talk. It's having a sense of what is right within your own heart. What makes your heart contract? What makes your heart stay open? I grew up in central Maine, and 99% of the men and boys that live in Maine hunt. And it's, a, it's just a natural, I mean, it's as natural as natural can be that as soon as you're old enough to carry a gun, your father will get you one and, and teach you to shoot and take you hunting. And uh, it's, it's, it's just that's the way life is there. And somehow I was lucky, and my father never taught me. Upandita says I was really lucky, and uh, I, I don't regret it. But I had a lot of friends that uh, hunted, and one of them told me about his last experience hunting. And he'd always been a hunter and never had any problem uh, killing the animals that he was hunting. And one time he was walking in the forest, and uh, down a deserted road, and he was hunting deer. And he came up over a rise, and standing right in the middle of the road, very close to him, was the deer, a deer that he was hunting. And he got what is uh, colloquially referred to as buck fever. Now, buck fever is when you get paralyzed when you're in sight of the, the target, so to speak, or when you see the object of your hunt, and you just freeze. And you, sometimes you can't, you can't do anything. You can't lift your gun, or if you have lifted your gun, you can't pull the trigger, you just, you just freeze. But when he froze, he was looking at the deer, and he saw in that deer the aliveness of it. He identified with the, the being inside those eyes. And he saw that, that there was a being there just like him. Just like him. And he realized then what he was doing in about the shooting. And he said his heart just cracked open and he melted and he just, that was it. No more hunting, ever. And this is after a lifetime conditioning, you know, where it was okay. Now, what happened right then? 
even in spite of all of his conditioning and the societal approval, family approval, encouragement really, to do what he was doing, he woke up to his own sense of what's right and wrong. That's what happened. The path of practice that we're on asks the same thing of us. Wake up to your sense of what's right and wrong. And as we walk this path of awareness and... um, Those are firecrackers. (laughs) We hope. As As we walk this path of awareness, we become increasingly familiar with subtler and subtler vibrations of the heart. And what might have been acceptable at one point no longer is acceptable when we have purified our heart a little more. Because we see this behavior harmful. Harmful to me, harmful to others. We have to exercise restraint. That doesn't mean it's it's, it's easy just because we feel, just because we have our own buck fever in relationship to uh, others, how we speak to them, how we relate to others sexually, our use of uh, uh, intoxicants and, and alcohol or whatever. But doesn't mean it's easy, but we can't be happy if we act contrary to the openness of our heart. cannot. And we know that. Somewhere we know that. And awareness makes us feel it over and over and over again until it's just too much to carry and we let go. We let go of that behavior, speaking and acting. This is the first training of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. Awakening to this sensitivity in the heart that cares about staying open and preserving the harmony in our relationships. When we can make and keep a commitment to precepts, to right livelihood, to right speech, we protect ourselves from self-blame. Many of us, when we, as we go on in our practice, discover this uh, extraordinary habit we have of self-criticism. And it's not self-criticism like uh, ennobling and enabling yourself to improve. It's more self-criticism, put yourself down and keep yourself down. And a lot of it comes from the unskillfulness of, of actions that we've taken in the past. Things we've said, things we've done, and we do our personal history review and we see it and we go, oh my, yay, 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 I guess I better... Uh, Right? And so, 
when we can keep a commitment, we protect ourselves from that. We also protect ourselves from being blamed by others if we're acting in such a way as to preserve harmony in our relationships, who will blame us? We protect ourselves from punishment by authorities. If we're not breaking the communal law, no punishments deserved. Imagine if all your relationships were harmonious. Just imagine, you know, with your neighbors, your employer, your employees, your partner, your teachers, <laughs> your students, uh, your garage, your car mechanic, you know, your bank teller, or whoever. Imagine they were all harmonious. All your exes. There's a good one. Imagine they were all harmonious. That would be a source of tremendous happiness in our life. Tremendous happiness. And so we can see how uh, important it is to open to this area of our life and this, this practice of the Eightfold Path to, to lay the foundation for true and lasting happiness in our life. That's the first training. The second training of the Buddha's Eightfold Path is a training in samadhi. Samadhi means concentration, really. But it's a training in tranquilizing the mind. Because when we come to a retreat like this and we undertake the uh, commitments to keep a harmonious community, we get the opportunity to see just how obsessive and addictive and tormenting our heart and mind really is. It is just pathetic or shocking. It is. You know, I'm, I'm, it's no secret that <laughs> our minds, our minds uh, drive us crazy if we pay attention. This is the obsessive kalesis. And the practice the Buddha taught and to, to, to address this area of suffering in our life is the development of samadhi or tranquility. And the three limbs of this path are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort. It doesn't happen without effort. It's not, it's not automatic. Uh, it doesn't come, you know, at any particular age. It only becomes because we make the effort. But it has to be right effort. And right effort is the effort that is gentle but persistent. You know, can you be persistent and persevering and determined gently? That's right effort. And the most dramatic stories of all Dharma practice come out of wrong effort. 
You know, people who strive with tremendous energy. And, of course, dramatic things happen, but uh, not the end of suffering. Or people who don't strive with energetic effort and uh, dramatic stories, and uh, nothing happens. The first, <laughs> I'd been practicing for a couple of years, and uh, I was on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, and I was really brand new to practice, I mean, essentially brand new, and we heard that there was a, uh, uh, a Burmese monk in the country who was, you know, uh, doing some teaching. So we invited him to come to the meditation center in uh, Massachusetts and to speak to, to offer teachings to the yogis at the three-month retreat. And before this monk came, we were told a little bit about him. His name was Tongpulu Sayadaw. And we were told that uh, he was a, a, a scholarly monk until he was in, you know, his early 30s or, or mid-30s or something, somewhere around there. Uh, and then he decided that uh, enough of the scholastic stuff, he wanted to actually practice. So he went to a remote area and he started doing meditation practice. But uh, he was diligent and sincere and dedicated and people noticed that and so people came and bothered him. Well, you know, they wanted him to teach. And so... <laughs> He went to a more remote place and uh, just continued his practice. And just enough people in the area to, to offer him alms. So during the day, he would practice in his cave. So he went into his cave to practice alone, and he would just come out for alms and go back into the cave. And he stayed in this cave practicing for 16 years, alone, for 16 years. And uh, somewhere in the 16th year, uh, the knowledge came to him that his teacher had died. His mind was pretty powerful by then. The knowledge came to him that his teacher had died, and he felt that he had to go and pay his respects. And to, so he came out of the cave, he went to his teacher's monastery. Sure enough, his teacher had died, but Two cobras had set themselves up on either side of him, and nobody could get to him. So this monk who came out of the cave walked up to the uh, body, and the cobras took off. Well, this set up all the, uh, like, oh, wow, this guy must be, this monk must have some real uh, attainment. So he stayed in, out of the cave for a year, taking care of his uh, teacher's monastery and finding a new abbot. and. You know, just generally going through the the uh, student's obligation to their teacher's responsibility. And uh, after he'd been out for a year, he decided to go back in the cave. So he went back in the cave, uh, alone in this remote area of Burma, for another 17 years. Now he'd been in the cave alone for 33 years. Right? Then he comes out and decides to teach, or was invited to teach. And where does he go? He comes to the States. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, what, what did I expect? I'd never even seen a, a Buddhist monk. I didn't know what a Buddhist monk looked like. But when I saw him, I was most impressed by how ordinary he looked. He was just an ordinary guy. 
I mean, he was Burmese and he was a monk and he was elderly. So that's not familiar, but it was ordinary. And what was most striking was that guy lived in that cave for 33 years. <laughs> you know, when you hear that kind of story, you know, you know they talk about the Buddha's Eightfold Path being the middle path between extremes. You know, between the extreme of indulgence and asceticism. Well, you know, we all have our idea of what the middle is. <laughs> and when you hear his story, it moves the middle <laughs> that way. Right? Right effort. You know, we all have to find it for ourselves. What is balanced effort for us? And the second factor of this um, development of samadhi is right mindfulness. And we all know how extraordinarily uh, uh, elusive right mindfulness is, or mindfulness at all is. But the making of effort does give rise to mindfulness. Mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness, is, leads to the development of samadhi. What's samadhi? We hear this word sometimes. What's concentration? What's, what's a concentrated mind? Or what's a samadhi? Or what's a tranquil mind? We've all had, you know, some bits and some tastes, some bits and pieces, I hope. Maybe brief. But if you look at that experience, what's going on there? Or I should say, what's not going on there? The hindrances aren't going on there. When the hindrances are overcome, when they're temporarily out of the way, the mind is not tormented. The mind is at ease. The mind is tranquil. It's a great relief to not be obsessed by the mind, to not be driven by the obsessing of the mind. And it's just by putting aside the hindrances, putting aside sleepiness, restlessness, putting aside desire and aversion and doubt. It doesn't mean that they're gone from the mind. It just means that they're temporarily out of the way, temporarily suppressed. And we can do that, as we're doing through Vipassana practice. We can also do it through metta practice or any of the uh, samatha or tranquility practices. The continual reflection on metta, sending your mind to metta again and again and again and again, develops such a powerful force and direction in the mind that there's no opportunity for these obsessive thoughts to get in. And so, due to the strength of the mind, going towards the metta object, the person, the phrase, the feeling, nothing else can get in. And so there is this temporary suspension of the hindrances, giving rise to a feeling of tranquility, ease, sometimes bliss, sometimes great joy, but nevertheless, suppression of the hindrances. When the hindrances are cleared away from the mind, 
we say the mind is pure. Samadhi is the purification of the mind. What's the mind? What's the function of the mind? What's the nature of the mind? (coughs) The mind's capacity is to know. To know things clearly. That's what the mind does. When the mind is hindered, it's not pure. It can't do that clearly. It can't know things clearly as they are. And so we say the mind is contaminated, the mind is impure. Samadhi practice purifies the mind. This isn't enlightenment. This isn't freedom. This is a temporary clearing of the mind of its hindrances so that it can do its work of knowing clearly. When the mind is secluded from the hindrances, it brings a happiness subtler than the happiness of harmony and community. Harmony and community, that's great. But the mind free of hindrances, or the mind in that tranquil state, much subtler happiness. Much subtler. What is it that we have to let go of in order to achieve samadhi? Because if the second noble truth is our dukkha of obsessing mind is caused by clinging, what is it we're clinging to? We cling to the habits of our mind. And we know, we've discovered the habits of the mind. The obsessing, uh, judging, uh, self-criticism, anger, impatience, whatever it is, we all have our, you know, our favorites. They're just habits of mind. When we let go of them, as we let go of them, as we don't cling to them, don't, don't, don't insist on having them that way, the mind is purified. Okay? Then we come to the end of obsessive mind suffering. What a relief. power of a concentrated mind, the power of a mind in samadhi, or the power of a tranquil mind, is immense. When the mind is tranquil, we can be in the midst of the most trying conditions and remain completely at ease. When I was in Burma again, I went initially and practiced Vipassana. And then I lost my visa and I had to leave the country and I came back in the country in early 1988. And I was again uh, doing Vipassana practice for a couple of months. And then you might remember that in the year before Tiananmen Square, 89, in China, there was uh, a political uh, uprising and military coup in Burma. 
1988, which was much larger, much more violent, and much more destructive than Tiananmen Square. But, of course, Burma is a closed country, and, and a lot of people never heard about it, or don't know much about it. But I was there, and um, one night in the monastery, uh, after six weeks of uh, all this excited, uh, uh, what we used to call political activity, where the people of Burma thought that they were going to get the opportunity for democracy because the dictator, Ne Win, was going to step down. And they just went, they just were ex exuberant. And they, every day they were marching in the streets uh, to, uh, to, in their happiness for what they thought was going to be the return to democracy. And for six weeks this went on. And then one night in the monastery, about uh, just about this time, about eight o'clock, we heard all this uh, firecrackers outside the monastery. And it kept going. And we heard some big firecrackers, and a lot of them. And uh, after a half hour or so, we realized that wasn't firecrackers. That was guns, and tanks, and bombs, and things like that. And uh, just overnight, the military took over reasserted control, passed a few law uh, edicts that said uh, any group of four or more people congregating anywhere would be shot. That was it. It was over, overnight. And the country was back in under political uh, military rule and dictatorship and an extraordinary fear and paranoia. Just unbelievable. And what was worse was in those six weeks of um, uh, political agitation for you know, the return to democracy and all the marching and by every organized group in, in uh, Burma, every one of them was filmed. And all those people disappeared. That's what happened in Burma. This was going on when I was there practicing. At first when it started, uh, I was practicing insight, and uh, it was it was too painful. There was just too much suffering in 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 the Burmese people then. It was just too devastating to 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 stay open to that. And so I switched my practice to metta, and uh, that was uh, difficult because my mind kept being flooded by just the the facts of what was going on. But uh, nevertheless, I kept persevering and was able to, to actually tranquilize the mind in the midst of that uh, horrendous activity. And after I'd been doing uh, metta for some weeks, uh, mostly I was doing metta for all the people, the Burmese population who would, were suffering at the hands of the, the military. And one day I went for an interview uh, with Upandita, and he said, uh, Yumeta is coming along. He says, are you doing metta for the generals that took over the country? And I said, uh, no, why, sh why should I do metta for them? Give me a break, you know. And he said, you know, they too want to be happy. But because of the thick confusion and ignorance that this total delusion in their mind, they think, they really think, that what they're doing 
is going to bring happiness to them. They, they really think that. So I had to tra- practice metta for the generals. And uh, it wasn't easy, but it took some time. And after some days or a week, I can't remember how long, also could have metta for the generals without condoning what they were doing. This is the power of tranquility practice, samatha practice, the ability and metta practice, the ability to calm the mind down in the face of extraordinary tension, fear, apprehension, paranoia. The mind is very, very flexible and it can be developed. And this is the power of the the practice that the Buddha was teaching. We don't live in Burma. We don't have quite the degree of fear and, you know, tension in, in our life as they do. But we have some. And undertaking the tranquility practice, the, the concentration practices, can bring this level of tranquility to our life, too. by purifying the mind, putting aside the hindrances. It's interesting. They say that samadhi practice or tranquility practice lasts for as long as you do the practice. As long as you keep doing the practice, you can rest and enjoy that seclusion of mind and that tranquility. But when you stop that practice, gradually the effects of your practice wear off. Well, when I was in Burma at that time, I practiced the metta and the other brahma viharas for about uh, 18 or 20 months straight. And uh, really, really quite, uh, quite, quite concentrated, quite focused mind. And then uh, after a while, uh, I stopped doing that practice, and uh, it was when I was leaving Burma. I left Burma and went to different countries and traveling, and eventually ended up back in the States. It took about a year for the effects of that concentration, of that practice, to wear off. When it did, all of the uh, kalesas, all of the obsessing of the mind, comes back slowly, if the conditions are there. That doesn't make samadhi practice or tranquility practice wrong or ineffective or uh, unuseful. It's useful, but it doesn't uproot the kalesas from the mind. And for this, the Buddha taught the third training of the Eightfold Path. And this is the training in the development of wisdom or understanding. The two limbs of this third training are right view, which is right understanding, right wisdom, right knowing, and right thought or right intention. It is only by understanding suffering cause of suffering and the end of suffering, 
that we can actually reach the end of suffering. We can temporarily um, uh, renounce it through sila, or ethical conduct. We can temporarily suppress it through samadhi or tranquility. But it takes wisdom to actually uproot it from the mind. This training in development of understanding of wisdom purifies our views and opinions, views and understanding. What views? What understanding need to be purified? Imagine, just think, if you never understood that it is possible to um, progress spiritually or to develop spiritually. Imagine that you never had that understanding. What would encourage you to practice? If you didn't think that all of this effort that you're making here was going to have any effect, would you do it? Definitely not. Right? So already, we all have some understanding, some right understanding, that the effort we make here makes a difference. It has its effect. We have some understanding of the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. And this is one understanding, one right understanding that we come by through practice. And the more we practice, the more we understand how the law of karma is unfolding in our life the actions that we take with uh, roots in goodness, generosity, kindness, understanding, produce happiness, produce results of happiness. The actions that we take rooted in confusion, aversion, greed, they bring us unhappiness. We see it over and over again in our practice, both here in the microscopic observation and in our life in general. This understanding, right understanding of karma is the foundation for our practice. But as we, as we move through practice, as we develop insight, we, 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 we see even deeper layers of the mind. We come to uh, subtler understandings of the truth we come to understand the truth of impermanence. That all things are impermanent. All things are transient. All things are changing out from underneath us all the time. When we see that, the only wise response is to let go. Not cling. Not clinging is the end of suffering. When we see the deep truth of dukkha, when we open to it, when we see this, this is a fact in life, and we see the unsatisfactory, we see the pain, we see the insecurity, we see the vulnerability, we see the oppressiveness of it, the only wise response to that truth is 
let go. Don't cling. Not clinging is the end of suffering. We also see the deep truth of anatta, or the mm, the characteristic of essencelessness, or non-selfness. Or we see that there's there's no substance, no essence within us, within others, within anything. We see that there really is just this ephemeral appearance of self here. When we see that, when we see deeply into the ephemeral nature of phenomena in ourself, again, the only wise response is to let go, not cling to what really isn't substantial anyway. Not clinging is again the end of suffering. The deepest layers of the mind we see through this insight practice. And it leads us to the subtlest letting go. (coughs) And the greatest happiness. This purification of our views and understanding through the training and development of wisdom is the Buddha's third training in the Eightfold Path. path of practice is something that we each walk by ourselves. that we each develop. It's not sequential. It's anywhere, anytime, any activity. Exercise restraint, calm the mind, see things as they are. Let go. All these trainings lead to not clinging. Not clinging is the source of the end of dukkha. So let's sit for a minute. 